Chapter 19 of Survivor's Tales of uh, Famous Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Jules Harlock, Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes, edited by Walter Wood, Chapter 19, The Tottenham Outrage. We have to go back to the most lurid episodes of life in the Wild West to find a parallel to the anarchist's outrage at Tottenham on Saturday, January the 23rd, 1909. Two Russian desperadoes armed with revolvers attacked and robbed a clerk and a chauffeur who had received a bag of money at a bank for wages. They fled, pursued by police and public, seeking safety in Epping Forest. For two hours, over a distance of six miles, a running fight was maintained between the robbers and the crowd. In the end, the two scoundrels died from bullet wounds, but not before they had killed a boy and a policeman and wounded more than a score of persons. Very great resources and courage were shown by the police in the pursuit, and subsequently, in recognition of their conduct, Detective Sergeant Charles Dixon and Police Sergeants W. Cater and Charles Eagles were decorated by the King with the King's Police Medal, which is the reward of conspicuous bravery. This story of the amazing outrage is told by Sergeant Dixon, who, on retiring from the Metropolitan Police Force after 29 years' service, had a high tribute to his skill and courage paid by the magistrate at the Tottingham Police Court. Just on the other side of Chestnut Road, at Tottenham opposite the police station, is Schnurman's Rubber Factory, where, in 1909, a number of aliens were employed at a very low wage. Amongst them was a Russian named Paul Heffield, who was about 26 years old and who soon learned that it was the habit of the firm to send one of their clerks to the bank in a motor car every Saturday morning at about 11 o'clock to fetch money to pay the weekly wages. There was another Russian called Jacob Meyer who worked in Tottenham. Both had lived in the town for some time and knew their way about quite well. At the time of the outrage, both men were out of employment. On this particular Saturday morning, I had seen both Jacob and Heffield. They were standing just outside the police station. In fact, I passed them, little suspecting what they were about to do. Jacob actually nodded to me as I passed. There was nothing unusual in the presence of these men, and often a number of aliens were to be seen loitering about the rubber works, where some of them had been employed. I was well known to a great number of these foreigners by being brought into contact with them through wounding each other. These fights mostly happened on Saturday night, after the men had received their wages and they had had a lot of drink. 
What happened just at the beginning I did not see, but it was this. The car had been to the bank where a clerk named Keyworth had got eighty pounds of wages. He had stepped out of the car and was about to enter the works when the two robbers snatched the money bag and tried to make off with it. Instantly the chauffeur, Wilson, sprang at one of them, on which the other peppered him with shots from his revolver. One bullet pierced the cap and others made holes in his coat, but luckily the chauffeur escaped injury. Keyworth, too, had gallantly thrown himself on his assailant, who did his best to kill him with his revolver, and failed, though he fired several shots. After a short, furious struggle in which all the advantage was with the robbers, who had taken the other two completely by surprise, Jacob and Heffield bolted, and then the chase began. A big burly chap named George Smith, who was passing, seized Heffield, and they both fell to the ground. Instantly, Jacob fired at Smith, and a bullet went through his cap, cutting his head and causing blood to flow. Heffield managed to wriggle clear and get on his feet, and off he went with Jacob. The thieves still had the bag of money, and they bolted with it down Chestnut Road, pursued by the chauffeur and the clerk, as well as the others. Wilson was still driving, and in the car was also Mr. Powell, the works manager at the rubber factory. The police heard the alarm at once, and instantly P.C. Tyler and P.C. Newman rushed out and jumped into the car. Tyler was not fully dressed and was without his helmet, and Newman, who was on reserve duty, was also without a helmet. They did not lose a second in driving after the runaways, who had already settled down to a defense which must have been well thought out and carefully planned, for Heffield deliberately stopped to fire on his pursuers, using his left arm as a rest and firing with his right hand after taking aim, Jacob doing the loading for him. This deliberation enabled the robbers to do immense mischief even at the start, and very soon the car was made useless through bullets striking it. The firing and commotion made people turn out of their houses in swarms and caused a growing crowd to join in the chase. As soon as the car was out of action, Tyler and Newman jumped out and dashed on foot after the runaways, who were making for Tottenham Marshes. After leaving Chestnut Road, Jacob and Heffield had turned into the Stony Road and dashed on to the corner of Mitchley Road, where the little chap named Ralph Jocelyn, about ten years old, was playing. This child, out of sheer curiosity, stopped his play and looked at the two villains who were tearing madly towards him, only a few yards away. The next thing that happened was that the poor innocent little chap was fired on and shot dead in the street where he had been playing. By this time the runaways had gone fairly amok and were firing at anything and anybody and doing a lot of harm. They tore on till they reached Downs Lane, which is near the marshes, the pursuers including Tyler, Newman and the chauffeur. Tyler was a splendid officer, plucky and resourceful, 
and just now he had found his previous experience in the army very useful. But unfortunately, he was at a hopeless disadvantage. Dashing round the buildings, he succeeded so far that he was only about sixty yards away from the two men, and he shouted, "'Give it up! The game's over!' Heffield did not hesitate a second. He stopped for a moment, rested his revolver on his arm and fired, and poor Tyler, mortally wounded in the head, fell to the ground. Newman, who was standing at Tyler's side, got a second shot for himself and had a most narrow escape, for the bullet grazed his cheek and took a small piece off his ear. The effect of these two shots will show how close the constables were to their men and the coolness and deliberation of the murderer's aim, for the pair of villains had now become murderers. By this time, a large number of private individuals had taken up the chase, as well as the police, amongst them the latter being Inspector Gold and Sergeant Hale. The telephone and telegraph had been at work. From all the surrounding station, officers had been sent on cycle and on foot to cut off the retreat of the runaways and capture them if possible. Having killed Tyler and shot down other pursuers, the murderers managed to cross Tottenham's marshes and reach the footpath that goes to Higham Hill, where they came across a number of men who were pulling down some disused rifle butts. Without a moment's hesitation, the fugitives fired on these men, who promptly dropped their tools and ran away to seek cover. The two men then crossed a footbridge over the River Lee. This was the stage at which I came on the scene. After I had seen the two men standing near the police station, I rode away on my bicycle and I was in the high road, talking to my colleague Sergeant Backhurst when I received a communication from Subdivisional Inspector Large, who had sent out P.C. Squires, he is now dead, on a bicycle to inform every policeman within reach to hurry to the marshes to cut off the retreat of the two men who were firing at everyone they could get. We both obtained some refreshments to buck us up and then rode as hard as we could towards the marshes, and the first sign I saw of the fair was the men running away from the rifle butts. Some revolvers and ammunition had been served out from the police armory, and several of us were lucky enough to be armed. When I joined in the chase, however, I had no firearm, and so I was at great disadvantage, and I felt this particularly when, in trying to cut off their escape, I saw the two men approaching me. I am not a very nervous person, but when the murderers actually began firing at me, I beat a hasty retreat, and was lucky enough to be able to hide myself to some extent behind a haystack. Then, as they were making for me, I had to rush for the Chingford Road. I had to get across a field, and as the murderers were following me, and their firing was in full swing, it was as exciting a dash across the open as any man could wish to have. At this time the murderers had fairly settled into their work and were getting over the ground partly as a, 
at a trot and partly at a sharp walk, with a big mixed crowd after them. They were utterly desperate, and they had a great deal of staying power, too. Nothing could have been more deliberate than their plan of campaign, for Heffield did most of the firing and Jacob did the loading for him. Heffield kept halting and using his left arm as a rest for the revolver, which he deliberately fired after taking aim. It was this coolness which enabled them to do so much execution, for they killed two persons, and in all wounded more than twenty, some seriously. The excitement was now intense, and it grew as the chase went on. In crossing the field, the two men came to some caravans, a little gypsy encampment. One of the gypsies, a man named Bird, hearing the commotion, looked out to see what was happening. By that time, the pair were just upon him. "'You have some, too,' shouted Heffield, and as he spoke, he fired several shots at Bird, who had a marvelous escape and promptly hid himself in his van. The ruffians hurried on and eventually got into the Chinkford Road. They must have seen that they were being headed off and that in time they would be run to earth. But they were making a desperate bid for liberty, and they stuck at nothing. It happened that an electric tram car was passing, carrying only a few passengers. Instantly the pair fired at the driver and ordered him to stop, which he did. Then he made a dash for the top, which he reached and laid down. The runaways, who had sent several bullets through the windows of the car, boarded it. Heffield seized the conductor, dragged him through the car to the front, held the revolver at his head, and ordered him to drive away as hard as he could go. Jacob, meanwhile, standing on the rear platform and firing at the pursuers. By this time the crowd had grown very much, and it had been very unexpectedly strengthened, for some sportsmen who were shooting at the New River Reservoirs near Lockbridge saw the runaways, and they joined in the chase, as also did other gentlemen in motor cars, while P.C. Hawkins, who had got a gun at the Crooked Billet public house and had commandeered a horse and cart, was in hot chase too. But Hawkins had ill luck, for his horse was shot, and so he had to take up the chase on foot. Inspector Gold and Sergeant Hale and others were following. Holding the muzzle of the revolver to the conductor's head, Heffield forced him to get the car along, and this the conductor managed to do. Though he was not used to driving, the car went at a great pace until it came to a passing loop, where it was forced to stop to let other, another car pass. While the car was tearing along, a woman and a child who were inside were screaming, and an old man, who was also a passenger, made a gallant attempt to grapple with Jacob. He sprang at the ruffian, who, however, was too quick for him, and shot him in the neck, and so put him out of action. At this moment, when it really seemed as if the murderers had no chance of escaping further, especially as a police station would soon be passed, Heffield saw 
a greengrocer's cart at the side of the road, and he shouted to Jacob to jump down and rush for the cart. This the two men did. Springing into the cart, one of the men took the reins and lashed the horse into a gallop, and the other man standing at the back of the cart and firing at the crowd of pursuers who were on foot, on bicycles, in motors and other conveyances. They got into Forest Road, making for Epping Forest. Several shots were fired at them as they bolted, but no harm was done. At this point the two men were only about two hundred yards from the forest, and they would probably have evaded their pursuers, but as luck would have it, a constable was standing in Forest Road on point duty, and this caused them to turn up Fullborn Road, which runs parallel with the Great Eastern Railway. It should be borne in mind that the party of sportsmen were totally ignorant of the fact that a boy and a policeman had been killed, and did not deliberately fire at the heads and faces of the runaways. If they had done this, the pellets from their fowling pieces would doubtless have damaged the murderers just enough to enable them to be captured for it was found afterwards that, though their clothing had been peppered by pallets, their flesh had not been injured. So far the murderers had done amazingly well, but the luck was turning against them, and the first ugly fact they discovered was that the chain brake was on the cart, so that one of the wheels was running dead, and this meant that the horse, in spite of the savage lashing, was soon spent and unable to get along quickly, especially as the road just there was steep. When they saw that the cart was of no further use, the men stopped the horse and sprang out and made a dash for the fields near Hyams Park and Hale End Station on the Great Eastern Railway. By this time I had become possessed of a revolver, one of a pair which P.C. Cater had been dispatched with from Tottenham Police Station, with a number of rounds and ammunition, and I was so close to the men that I could easily have shot at least one of them, but unfortunately my revolver was not loaded. The men who were now exhausted were making towards the railway bridge which crosses Ching Brook. The bank at that place was enclosed with barbed wire, and there was a big fence, so there was serious obstacles to overcome besides the pursuers were very close on the heels of the fugitives who must have seen that the game was pretty nearly up heffield made a desperate attempt to climb the fence but the sportsmen with the fowling pieces had him under fire from their motor car and he failed and fell to the ground which was the bank of the brook Jacob had been luckier, for he had scaled a fence and was still on the run. Heffield saw at once that his murderous game was up. He had only one cartridge left, and this he turned on himself, holding the muzzle of the pistol to his head and firing. His obvious intention to kill himself on the spot did not succeed, for the bullet went round the skull, though it inflicted a dangerous wound. Sergeant Mackay, who had kept up the pursuit on his bicycle, rushed up to Heffield and made him a prisoner, 
steps being taken instantly to have him conveyed to a doctor. This was done, and it seems as if the man would live, but he did not survive a second operation which became necessary at the Prince of Wales Hospital, Tottenham. While Heffield was lying mortally wounded, Jacob was trying desperately to reach the shelter of the forest, where he might well have hoped to hide for a long time, if not escape altogether. The care and cunning with which the two men had mapped out the whole of their performance was shown by the fact that in all their running away, from the moment of the robbery, they had kept to the valleys and had not taken to the hilly roads and tracks, and they had gone over rough and enclosed ground, which made it hard for motors and cycles to follow. For this reason, I, on my cycle, in keeping up to the pursuit of Jacob, lost some hundreds of yards of ground before I was well up with him again, for I was forced to keep to the roads while he was able to take a shortcut across the country. Jacob was making towards an unfinished building where some men were at work, and one of these, a plasterer, pretty well understanding what was happening, shouted, Stop him! Stop him! In his excitement and hoping to bring the runaway down, he aimed two bricks at him, but they did not hurt him. On the other hand, Jacob was luckier, for he turned round and fired two shots at the plasterer, both of which took effect. I do not know how he got on. Jacob was now fairly at the end of his tether. He must have known that his companion was probably dead or captured, and that his own hope of escape was the, of the slightest. But no doubt he had absolutely made up his mind not to be taken alive, and to sell his life as dearly as possible. There was in the line of his retreat a little old-fashioned detached cottage, a quaint-looking building on the roadside, with a bit of garden in front, fenced in by wooden palisadings. Before he could get to the road and cottage, Jacob had to crawl through a fence along a ditch, but he managed to do this, pretty well ahead of his nearest pursuers, including myself, and he ran round to the back door of the cottage and burst into the place. The occupant of the house appeared to have been out at the time, talking to a neighbor, having left her two little boys in the cottage. Jacob was undoubtedly very much exhausted by his long run and the excitement of the chase, and, having locked the kitchen door behind him, he seized a mug or tin and took a long draught of water from the tap. The little boys, terrified at the sight of this wild, dusty, blood-stained ruffian, started screaming, whereupon he turned on them savagely and threatened to kill them if they made a noise. They were soon able to get out by the front door, for the cottage was quickly surrounded by people who had come up, including armed policemen and the sportsmen with the fowling pieces. At last the second murderer was trapped, but the thing to do now was to get at him. But this time Sergeant Bunn and Sergeant Hart had arrived from Edmonton. Acting very warily, Cater and myself managed to enter the cottage through the lower window, and the first thing we learned was that Jacob had bolted upstairs. 
for he had shown his face at the front bedroom window and instantly several volleys were fired one result being that all the glass was knocked out of the frames previously to this a very courageous attempt had been made to enter the cottage by p c eagles who was in plain clothes but i did not at the time know that he was a member of the force he had heard the alarm and rushed up and got a ladder by means of which he had tried to enter the house through the back bedroom window failing in this he got in through the back door which cater and myself had managed to open as soon as we had got inside the cottage we saw a number of sooty hand marks on the furniture and walls this led us to think that the murderer had tried to get up the chimney so i directed cater to fire up the chimney with his revolver this he did but nothing seemed to be struck except soot and bricks finding that jacob was not in the lower part of the house i opened the door which led to the little old-fashioned staircase from this staircase a small landing such as you often see in old cottages led to the front bedroom i got to this landing and opened the bedroom door not too quickly and not too widely and the first thing i knew was that jacob was standing on the stairs with his pistol pointed at me he instantly fired but i had sprung back before he could get at me i swiftly closed the door again and called on him to surrender if you surrender i shouted through the doorway throw down the revolver we won't hurt you jacob muttered something which i did not understand he did not speak good english but i saw that he did not mean to surrender so i suggested to sergeant bunn and others that as there was a mongrel dog tied up near the back door it should be released and taken inside and told to go upstairs to see that if it could drive jacob out of the bedroom or at least take his attention off us and give us a better chance of getting him i pointed out that its life was not of such value as our own and that it would be better for the dog to draw the murderer's fire than for us to take the further risk at present so it was agreed that the dog should have a chance and accordingly it was untied i believe by sergeant bunn and it went into the cottage it was not an easy matter to deal with the animal which appeared to be very ferocious the dog sprang up the staircase and promptly did what we had not been quite able to do it frightened jacob so much that he bolted away from the door after shutting it at this stage someone entered the cottage with a double-barreled fowling piece and taking this weapon i fired one of the barrels at the closed door with it but the pellets had little or no effect and only slightly damaged the wood i pulled the other trigger but that barrel would not go off so the fowling piece was a failure in the meantime cater and i got our revolvers loaded and we set to work the door was very thin so that our bullets went through with ease making holes which enabled us to see into the room it was a dangerous thing to peep through the holes but we did so and saw that jacob was tearing about the room in a terribly excited state and was literally at bay 
Eagles, who did not seem to value his life as much as I valued mine, pushed up and said, Let me have a pop at him. I said, No, I want the revolver to defend myself with. But he begged again, and after a lot of persuasion, I allowed him to take it. Then Eagles, without the slightest hesitation, hurled himself against the door, burst it open, thrust his arms around until it was well inside the room, and fired two shots. What the results of them was I cannot say, for it was never ascertained whether one or both struck Jacob, or whether he killed himself at last with his own revolver. When Eagles could see into the room, he saw that Jacob was leaping about and laughing wildly. He shouted to us, Come on now! Whereupon the man sprang onto a child's bed which was in the room and instantly tried to pull the clothes over his head. He still had the revolver in one hand. As soon as the cry, Come on now, went up, Eagles rushed into the room and up to the bed, and I went after him. Like a flash, Eagles snatched the pistol from Jacob's hand, and I seized him by the throat and dragged him onto the floor and down the staircase, pulling him backward. The blood was oozing from his forehead, and it was clear that he was dangerously wounded by one or more bullets. I dragged him down the stairs into the yard where he was left lying on his back. A crowd came round him instantly. Jacob was between life and death, and there was a horrible grin on his face. He never stopped grinning, and that awful look was on his face when he died, which was soon, with the crowd round him and his eyes staring. The crowd was terribly wrought up, and so intense was the feeling against the man that if it had not been for the police, I believe they would have poured paraffin on him and burned him where he lay. He was a dreadful sight, covered with blood and smothered with soot, showing that, as we had suspected, he had tried to escape by climbing up the chimney. The inside of the cottage, especially the bedroom where we had got Jacob, presented a sight that was horrible to see. The pictures were all broken, the wallpaper torn and spattered with blood, and every particle of furniture damaged. The bed was the worst sight of all. I had done my share, and I stood by and looked on at what was happening. Sergeant Bunn searched the body and found five pounds worth of silver upon him in one of the bags which had contained the eighty pounds the clerk had got at the bank and which these robbers had snatched from him. The rest of the money was never found, but it was thought that they had thrown it into the River Lee and other places. A most thorough search was made for days and days. The cottage was almost pulled to pieces because it was thought that Jacob might have hidden the money up the chimney. But as I say, the balance was never found. It is my impression that the two men had an accomplice who during the chase received the bulk of the cash, leaving five pounds with Jacob to carry them on for the time being. Eighty pounds in silver and copper was too heavy and bulky to run off with for a long distance. These two men must have had at least two hundred rounds of ammunition with them before starting their desperate game. 
Most of the firing was done by Heffield. Undoubtedly, the capture of the pair was greatly due to the smartness and resourcefulness of subdivisional Inspector Large, who was in charge of the Tottenham Division. He had been in the army and took prompt measures to round up the police from all the surrounding districts to spoil the runaways' plans and prevent them from reaching Epping Forest. So it happened that as the murderers ran away, they were intercepted in every direction by police who had received the emergency call, and it was in this way that eagles came on. Inspector Large was a mounted officer, and he was present at the cottage within a few seconds of Jacob's being pulled out of the bedroom. Poor Tyler's loss was a great grief to us, for he was a fine, smart young fellow, and we were very sorry because of the death of the little boy and the wounding of Newman and so many other people. It was, of course, a matter of very great pride to me when I received from His Majesty at Marlborough House the King's Police Medal. I had been previously presented with the Carnegie Medal. I well remember that when I and my comrades were honored by the king, the medal was also bestowed on a fine young detective named Alfred Young for his courage in arresting two armed burglars who tried to shoot him. Not long ago, he was shot dead while doing his duty in arresting an ex-army officer who was tried for murder but was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to 12 years penal servitude. End of chapter 19, The Tottenham Outrage.